Happy Sunday, everybody. Welcome to uh, episode three of Ignore the Noise. We are back at it uh, one week later. Uh, I am your co-host, Nick Hansen, and joining me as always is Matt Rustin. We don't have a guest today, um, but we're ready to get after it. And we, we came into today's episode. Um, we were talking about some topics we could cover. We were thinking we might touch on education, and uh, we're not going to dive into Kyle Rittenhouse's trial um, given how fresh that is, and Matt and I have some some pretty strong opinions on, I would say, opposite sides regarding that. But what, as a result of that trial, one of the topics we want to cover is uh, justice, the justice system in America. Um, you know how that's handled, how that's approached, uh, ideas and opportunities for reform. Because I think we both agree there are those opportunities. It's it's an imperfect system. Um, in many cases, there are evidence to support that there are there are some serious flaws um, and breaks in that system. But with that, how's it going, Matt? It's going well. It's, it's good to be here. Um, I'm excited. Uh, Nick and I have decided to kind of switch over to uh, a more weekly um, format, a little bit shorter, but provide um, content more frequently. Uh, and, and hopefully that that works out for everybody uh, that's listening to us. Uh, yeah, just had some great conversation recently with uh, Nick, and you know I feel like we've got a lot of great content coming up. Um, the thought of uh, justice and social justice is is a, a really big topic, so we thought we would touch on that uh, today, and then hopefully move into a series on kind of education and financing and things like that, and then kind of come back to justice because you know you can go down a number of rabbit holes um, and, and have a different perspective. And, and of course, you know, a lot of what we, uh, Nick and I, I think would agree that uh, we talk about is from kind of a Western perspective, United States perspective. So um, maybe if we get some different guests um, or try to look at it empathetically from some other views that maybe you know, education, justice, all of those type of um, high level topics are perceived differently by, you know, other countries and continents. And us. I think it's just wildly interesting. Likewise. And I was just pulling up um, so I, I think a great place to start, too, is um, how do we define justice? How do we define social justice? And per the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, um, the definition of justice is the process or result of using laws to fairly judge and punish crimes and criminals. Um, I agree with that. I think one of the topics you and I were talking yesterday, and you mentioned that in, in some cases, you know, we see these, these court cases where multiple charges are brought against an individual, you know, in the attempt oftentimes on the prosecution side to say, hey, we're going to bring the house and hope something sticks in order to get justice. And um, personally, I think that, you know, we also talked about how there's a sentencing problem in America. And you know, as a result, there are people who have committed what may be minor crimes, but have gigantic sentences attached to those. Um, and I, I think part of that cause is if you're trying to bring forth, you know, just an immeasurable amount of charges, you know, regardless of your race, ethnicity, et cetera, as a result of that, if that's the standard in most court cases from a prosecution perspective, you are 
inherently going to have larger sentences, more people um, convicted of crimes, et cetera, from there. I I would agree um, that that's an interesting um, concept to consider. Um, You know, I I think one of the premise that we are trying to um, engage here is that people will look into what we're talking about or how um, we look at information and kind of understand these topics a little bit better, whether you agree with Nick or myself or somewhere in between, is that you go out and kind of educate yourself. Um, And a lot of the conversations Nick and I have offline are kind of, I think, in an attempt to educate each other, think about other perspectives and other sources of uh, information. Uh, I would say one thing I've learned from delving into kind of just the different court cases that are going on is that the, the state laws matter a lot uh, and they differ from state to state. So that's really, really important to understand. I had a little experience with that when I um, worked in long-term care because um, here in Minnesota, the, the laws and statutes that, that help regulate that industry are very different than um, where I was engaging that when my mother was uh, receiving some hospice care uh, in Oklahoma. And those, those laws and statutes and definitions are, are really different. And so in part, I think that um, that's why multiple charges um, can be brought uh, because you know, we're looking at state charges versus federal charges and, and what that means in those court systems. So in, in justice, I would agree, um, justice versus injustice. I, I agree with that definition. Um, with, with what they're saying. Uh, but I do want to point out something that's always kind of bugged me a little bit is the difference um, between fairness, sameness, and equality. Um, that that um, somehow fair and uh, equality seem a little bit more synonymous um, and not sameness. So being treated um, the same uh, is a little bit different um, and that you to treat to try to treat people equally because um, say men and women are, are, are maybe not the same a, a better probably point would be adults versus um, juveniles we've seen that a lot in uh, court cases as how people are treated before they're 18 and after they're 18 um, and making sure that they are being treated equitably among you know their peers or the context of of the court case I was going to say the same thing. I think uh, when we talk about justice and talking about treating people equally, um, that's problematic versus treating people with equity and giving people same opportunities or a level playing field. Um, Because, you know, if we were were going to treat people equally, I would make the same amount as LeBron James on a basketball court. And there's, there's no reason to pay me the same amount of money uh, to play basketball. I like basketball, but I'm nowhere near LeBron James level. I know that's kind of a silly comparison, but I love that one because at the end of the day, he has a skill that is far beyond mine and he deserves to make more money um, for that. Now in the, in the context of juveniles and adults, um, you know, 18 in many ways is a subjective age, especially from a psychological perspective. Um, <clears throat> my mom was a psychologist, if that tells you anything about my upbringing. Um, but that's given me some insight because one of the things she said, especially about males is your prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until, you know, mid to late twenties, depending on who you are, the older I get, the further that seems to be extending. 
in her data. Um, mm -hmm. But I, 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 you know, I can agree on say 24, 25. Um, I definitely think I, I uh, have better judgment than I did when I was 16, 18 years old. Um, but that's important context because just because you flip a switch at 18, you know, the world says you're an adult, you can go off to war, so forth. You can do some more things, but does that truly make you an adult? Um, I don't know. And, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that. No, I, I would agree as well. I mean, the decisions I made as an 18 to 25 year old um, were, were pretty, I would even say, you know, 16 or 15, 16 to, to 25. Those, those are really some, uh, I would even say destructive years of my life. And I didn't really turn my life around until I was probably like 26 or 27. So I would agree with that. And I think society is kind of, um, kind of changing a little bit more whereas you know 100 years ago you could get married at 13 14 15 uh, we were a more agrarian society um and and what we were responsible for was different we're, we're seeing that reflected in um the drinking age the consumption age for uh, marijuana in those states that that's legal um i think gambling um it's not 18 across the board for the entire united states so i i think that they are holding out that um maybe maybe 21 uh is the new 18 if that's not too cliche and i would i would agree with that i would agree with that for say war like you know being able to go into the armed services or at least like frontline active duty type of work um i would agree with that for even voting to a degree because um i, I think that today with um you know social media the access to false information um, that, that or, or inaccurate information and, and kind of the premise of our show is discerning that is that still difficult for um, people who, who don't have, as you put it, their frontal um, cortex kind of develops um, as much as it could to make some of these very, very, very important decisions. And I, I, I don't want to sidebar too much on this, but do your kids have TikTok? No, 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 no. That, that's good. That's a, that's a great point, I think, though, in just the power of social media, because you can very easily, you know, within that demographic, that generation, um, you know, you could have watched Kyle Rittenhouse trial uh, right. live. Like that, that's something that, you know, you would have had to turn on the news 20 years ago, it would have had to have been on that channel. And sure. no one else in your house would have wanted to watch that. And you would have had, or, you know, everyone else would have wanted to watch that. You would have had no other option. It's, it's amazing the access to information, good and bad, right or wrong, um, miss this or other that we now have in the pockets of our hands. That's just truly unregulated. And I agree with you. I think raising the voting age, raising that age that we can go to war. Um, you know, we also live in a world that from a war perspective, again, not to go down another rabbit hole. We've talked about the exorbitant amount we spend on defense, which I, I'm glad we have defenses. Um, but a lot of that we're getting so computerized, so robotic with it, that do we really need human bodies? Most of these wars are being fought with computers, you know, with devices, not to dive down that rabbit hole, but um, I think raising that age for service would be a good thing. Yeah, I have a comment on that before we get it kind of back towards uh, justice is that that um, I think understanding that while it, it, it seems like it's a governmental, uh, the military industrialized complex is a governmental entity, um, I, I think it's something like 60% of the funds spent on that are uh, go to for profit 
companies that that produce the equipment and um, the intelligence gathering and, and kind of the equipment, like I said, the equipment for for our armed services that, that you're talking about. So um, it is a for-profit entity and some of these wild uh, $10,000 hammer type things, uh, instances within the military are not uncommon. I mean, I, I just think that that's something to, important to kind of consider as it's not a not-for-profit industry for sure. So oh, back I, to justice. I, I, I don't disagree with that either. Um, you know, so, that. Well, so we, what we were, we were kind of talking about last night, uh, Nick, and I think was the two main aspects of, of social justice or, or justice and thinking about the court system is um, both what you have already brought up is kind of the number of charges or, or what kind of charges get brought up. And I think that the other one is the sentencing guidelines. And um, I mean, we've all heard the cliche, you know, there's, um, what is it? There's lies and then there's statistics or something like that, that, that basically means you can get statistics to say um, anything you want them to. Um, but I'm a firm believer that, that any of our listeners could, could go out and find some fairly um, objective information that that shows the disparities between um, both people of color and people on the lower end of the socioeconomic perspective um, that are, are simply impacted and treated differently um, for no other reason. So I know that's kind of where we were talking about last night and I have a couple of thoughts on that but go ahead. I'd like to know your your comments if you think there are anything other kind of major tenants within the subject we're talking about. Yeah, I wanted, I'm trying to look on the Department of Justice because I had found a publication that um, I wanted to weight that data against the number of people incarcerated. So this, this publication in the Department of Justice indicated that I think it was, I think they were looking at violent crimes. So assault, gun charges, whatever it may be. Um, the the breakdown, and they had a couple various breakdowns, but it was the, the number of individuals who were convicted and incarcerated by race. White was at the top, but they, from what I could tell, did not adjust those numbers for the percentage of population. So I think it was white, black, Hispanic. So I'm, I'm looking for that article while you talk, because I'm curious if I can find some data on the number of people who are incarcerated. And I think this comes back to a little bit um, <clears throat> with that discrepancy is where and how are we policing? Who are we stopping? Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of data out there, um, on, on either side of that. And like you said, it's, it's amazing with a Google search, you can find data to support darn near any, um, any opinion you have. The key is discerning within that noise, um, what's really going on with that data. Cause we also live in a world now, too, from even a publication perspective for peer-reviewed research, it's about the headline or what's the one-liner you can take away from it and put in a media article that says, well, this article says this. And if you really open up a fully published peer-reviewed article, they are going to say, you know, we have a 95% confidence interval that there is this data element that has a, a one standard deviation to the mean. You know, it's not as cut and dry as, well, this is the direct answer for anything in, yeah, in a true research study in that, that and, perspective. And I, 
I would say probably in, in um, when when I was in college uh, in graduate school specifically, I, I had a teacher that that taught both my undergrad and uh, graduate classes, so that's why I loop, loop them together. But um, and he taught he taught strategy, and that that was really interesting. But my key takeaway from both of his all of his teaching was the answer depends right it depends it depends on the context of what what you're really asking what you really want um to know and so that that's the discernment factor um whenever we're analyzing the information we're taking in um and is it qualitative is it early material right you said it doesn't correlate how many standard deviations is there a way um we'll save this for the education talk but that's exactly you know the point that i would have as far as what the education system should be doing um with whatever time they have with the students is helping them be able to discern information because there, there's just so much of it right now and it, that is a paradigm shift from say like a hundred years ago when things were more agrarian um so that's and, and people are forming their opinions from this um i would uh, yeah, cool. uh oh. go ahead well, I was just going to say a hundred years ago too, you, you know, you either had like what an encyclopedia at home, you had to go to the library to look up that information. It's, it's, it's like the printing press with uh, what Martin Luther, you know, was able to do with Christianity and the Bible to distribute that among various um, languages, not, not saying that, you know, that was just an example of how information could be rapidly distributed and it, it flattened the world. Same with that, you know, the advent of the internet in just an astonishing way. Even now, when something happens, like say the Rittenhouse trial, everyone knows that the moment it happens or the moment someone said that. That's just, it, it, it was unheard of even 10, 20, 30 years ago. I'm glad you actually brought up the Martin Luther example um, a couple of years ago. There was a fascinating uh, Martin Luther exhibit at the Minnesota Institute of Art um, that I that I got to see. And um, I think while he was not a perfect person whatsoever, um, that that's a, a great shift there is to kind of try to. Um, make information accessible for people and so we're on the other side of that where now we have it's everything's accessible but can you discern it right and and again for um if we think about and not to pick on a faith it's just something i'm more familiar with but kind of those um 15th 16th century you know um Catholicism, um, many people were illiterate and they, they used that um, as an advantage and they being the, the people that wielded power or wanted to dictate um, the outcomes in an injustice, um, in an injustice towards people kind of to control them or whatnot. Um, and I think that we still have some of that, um, being able to read legalese, I always love that term, but kind of um, these different words, Latin, um, that, that a lot of the legal jargon that things are written in, it is hard for people to understand. I mean, uh, even, even like I said, reading um, the statutes um, from Wisconsin just the other day um, and about the gun rights and things like that, um, that that's not something that I think the everyday person can just read and completely understand in context, right? And that, that takes some, some ability. So to be able to form your opinion about such a complex and dynamic 
issue just in one court case, perhaps um, in one state um, is, is quite difficult. So then to be able to extrapolate that on a national level or even like, you know, a let's say like a regional level, like the Midwest or something like that, and and posit something about the state of justice or injustice, that that's really, I guess, from my perspective, interesting that that people aren't able to really back that up with a whole lot of empirical evidence. They can really tell you how they feel about it, um, and some people can anecdotally tell you about what's happened to them or someone they know or someone they know they know. Um, you know, uh, which is problematic from kind of the coffee can type of game of uh, the story changes as it goes down the string and into the coffee can. But um, what, what are your thoughts about any of that? Well, I, I think we're unique and it's, it's unfortunate with the access to information we have in the palm of our hand that more people don't use it to say, hey, what is the law in Wisconsin versus what happened in again we're not talking about the Rittenhouse case but in that case as an example to say I'm going to form my opinion off of that not what the headline was that I saw because you know we've seen this during COVID I saw a Yahoo article yesterday um, that said 11 supplements that are bad for you which again taken out of context if you take too much of any supplement it's bad but I mean vitamin D vitamin C fish oil it was surprising to me how many things on that list that I definitively would say have improved my health from taking them from a supplement perspective. And it, it was just, it was very interesting to see that, that, okay, you know, that opinions out there, that feelings out there. But if we, if we go back to some scientific evidence or uh, some data, even anecdotal, um, you know, it's uh, it's important to do your own research and to go to truly the ground level. You know, when we're talking about a court case, what does the law, what does the statute say? Uh, that is something that most lay people don't look up and aren't familiar with. And I, I think that's a, that's a generalization I could stand behind. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that would be another argument again, to, to push out the voting age until, until 21. Um, because I think some of these um, issues are hard to delve into um, and, and, we do see the changes. And again, that's just another piece of the context. I think about, you know, um, the second amendment um, and, and how that is written and what it literally means and entails versus how it's been um, kind of understood by certain groups. I think that um, kind of the premise that the founding fathers um, were somehow unbiased and, and kind of all knowing um, yet, when when they were kind of writing some of this the you know the context of who was considered a, a man or a person you know you don't land things like that people of color were not considered a, a person um and and now um they they are um thinking about who could vote as far as women people of color um that that's not been that long ago we, we don't have to go back and look you know hundreds of years ago to to find that out and i say that because the people that have written laws up to this point um have largely been kind of like you know anglo christian males um and not always with an agenda to manipulate and oppress but there are a lot of 
those situations um, that that um, oppress people of color. Not and, and without going, you know, there's so many rabbit holes you could go down. But um, what is deemed protected class persons, and so I think that that's important that we understand justice versus injustice and the systematic impacts of that, right? Because it's not just a, um, we want a specific judge or a jury to do the right thing. Um, they are confined by laws. And, and I will say that just, again, the Rittenhouse thing, um, there, there are some articles popping up that um, are discussing maybe if we don't want outcomes like this that, that seem to be so so blatantly flawed um, is that that we start looking at the laws and adjusting the laws. So that, that kind of goes hand in hand with voting age of 21, marijuana being legal, just looking at our laws and do they make sense now? And more importantly, what is the impact of those laws across our entire community? Agreed. And again, we, we could go into Rittenhouse. Um, and it's, it's interesting regarding those laws because say, you know, I think he was, he was a kid who, you know, you shouldn't have inserted yourself in that situation to begin with. There were law enforcement professionals, you know, who probably were understaffed for the situation, but, um, you know, equally there were people at, at said rally, even the prosecution in his closing argument referenced all of the laws one individual broke on that night and not saying to weigh that, but, um, you know, if people are going to go out and destroy property, in many ways, that's that's what a lot of what America is built on, that you have a right to own your property, to protect your property. Um, I do appreciate how the original law was written, that if you own land, that's what makes you a voter. Um, we could probably debate that either way. I know, again, with a living document, that may change, um, but that that is an interesting thing. And I, obviously, um, everyone is a person now, um, regardless, but uh, I yeah, just... I, I would, I would absolutely say that. I mean, uh, that, that every person, um, is important and, and should be counted equitably among, you know, the, the country, um, and have their voices heard. I think that what we're already, what you're talking about potentially is that, um, you need to own land to be able to get a vote, but that, that significantly would oppress lots of people in, uh, urban areas where, um, or, or even think about uh, corporate farming and that emergence that w corporate farming wasn't a thing, um, when the founding fathers were, were, um, drafting. What do you mean when you say corporate farming? Yeah, these are just farms owned by businesses that own, you know, millions of acres of land. So in that regard, all of the people that 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 um, that farm or work in that area don't really own the land. Similarly, you could say that uh, in large, say, New York, these urban areas where renting is so big, um, th there are a lot of corporations that own the, these big um, rental places right? These, these big apartment complexes. So, so in that regard, uh, owning, uh, having some kind of requirement to own land would, would exclude large swaths of the United States population because 
corporations own this capital, this this uh, land capital. Um, so th that's an interesting perspective of who gets to say. Um, and unfortunately, everyone doesn't get an equal say um, in this. And, and that's that's kind of the profound impact of injustice is that you know, even with our voting, the way that um, the Senate and the House are set up, that um, people in more rural states have a larger percentage say in what happens in the country than people in more largely populated um, areas. That that's not debatable. That's a fact. And you're you're weighting that by how much someone's vote counts in New York City versus, say, South Dakota. Relative yeah, I, to the population. I, I always like, you know, New York or, or LA, especially in California in general versus like Wyoming, your, your state, South Dakota, um, to, to be able to, the, those persons votes in those more rural states. Um, I, I get that the house, you know, changes uh, the number of delegates, um, I believe based off the census. Um, and there are fixed number of um, delegates there and they then are adjusted after the census. So, so I get that. Um, but, but even with the Senate, you know, that, that's the, a similar situation where, um, you know, there's two senators from South Dakota that represent what a million people, something, 2 million people versus, you know, two senators that um, arguably represent, you know, 30 or 40 million people. And that's, that's, not, that's just not equitable. There's, there's no way that that's equitable. And so, and that causes injustice. So for, for a million people to be able to dictate to 35 million people, um, what's going to happen based on a vast difference of lifestyle, um, vocation, education, um, you know, values. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's not, doesn't have to be right or wrong. Um, culturally diverse. I'm guessing that um, Wyoming, Montana, South Dakota are much more homogenous than say um, California. I, I would argue that that's probably an accurate statement. I think that's, that's probably a fair generalization and it's, that's where I think the land really comes into play. And that's where I think it makes sense because in, in a South Dakota and a Wyoming and a Montana, albeit they are more rural, those people do have a bigger stake of the pie in America. And for those folks in LA and New York, a, a large number of those individuals are farming the land they're producing for America, for GDP to help keep this country running. And not to say that people in New York and LA aren't, but they are two completely different worlds and attempting to govern them in the same ways. You know, if we're talking about equity to say, um, you know, the exact same law in New York makes sense in South Dakota. Um, I, I think that's problematic. Yeah. So, so one thing I'll, I'll point out every time I feel like I catch you saying it is, is kind of these absolute statements. I, that's just not something that I'm, I think is realistic to say something like the exact same law. Um, I, I don't think that that's necessarily um, a premise that I would engage in. Uh, I would similarly say that I still believe in um, the difference between state laws and federal laws. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not opposing anything like that, but when it comes to um, the direction of federal laws, federal elections, uh, I think that it's just a, a um, 
whoever gets the most votes. That's just what it is for a law, for a person. Um, there is no way that anybody, uh, anybody's vote should count more than one, just one single vote, one voice, one vote, um, and it shouldn't be counted any differently. But, but unfortunately, it is. It is weighted extremely differently. Um, and, and again, we could get into um, the impacts of gerrymandering and um, the, the electoral college and those types of things. Uh, but these are great examples for people to look into as far as um, the systematic oppression that, that they, they cause. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to say that that was the intent. I think too many people um, try to deflect or defend um, systematic flaws by by saying it wasn't intended that way. Uh, and I think that that's not necessarily as important of an issue uh, is that once you understand something uh, is flawed, um, that you work to fix to that, uh, work to fix that based on materiality and degree of importance. So I think that once we probably start with what an adult is, that's probably a good a good place to start. Then we figure out, um, how do we make it equitable where everybody's weights counts the same way? Uh, because th this is a reality based off of the last um, census is that I, th I think it was something uh, like 2050. Is that right? That, that the um, Anglo population will be a minority in the United States. Something like that. It's, it's within our lifetime. Absolutely. Yeah, they've been saying that for a while and was it hispanics that are going to be the predominant in america yeah, yeah well, and, go ahead. so from a justice perspective if we get back to voting and everyone's vote counting equally so are you saying that we and and i'm not i'm not trying to put words in your mouth but so are you focused on the presidential or from a senate perspective do you just take away all of the lines and have the country vote and just have a, a, a subset Senate from there, or you this would is, wait, wait the Senate seats based on population. So I would, I would make a clear distinction between what is um, being decided by the state and what is being decided at the federal level. So those are, those are kind of two different things. Um, if everything that is decided on the federal level is is basically a popularity contest so there's there's gerrymandering is completely eliminated from a from federal voting right it's if you if you have a million people that are eligible to vote whichever of those people um vote and decide something and that means again every single area has the same number by volume of voting stations i mean i, I would probably and when it comes to voting on fed on the federal aspect and into the state state aspect as well probably um emulate like new zealand i think they have mandatory voting everybody is just 100 registered um automatically as long i mean clearly like felons things like that that would disqualify you that would be a little bit different um and i think that they probably have something like that i'd have to look into it but but everybody's just registered. You can vote online, you know, that we would invest, invest in having a fair election that makes voting as easy as possible. Um, and I think that that is something to be considered with the technology that we have here. I mean, I, I think that we have the technology to do something safe like that. Um, but we, we, we have to 
move that way before we have to agree on things like that elections are are safe um and i don't think that the, that we're we're quite there or that there is value probably more importantly value in hearing from everyone so again um not the i think state, i think there but, is value in hearing from everyone i i think you should need to identify yourself i think that should be a base requirement for anyone who votes that you need to present identification um that can be verified absolutely and there is there is a, I know there are some startups. I can't think of the names right now. Um, I follow Overstock as a company. They have a collection of blockchain assets. This is getting into the crypto world that they invest in. And uh -huh. one of those companies is a, a voting system that is blockchain based such that, you know, I think each individual would essentially have their own identifier from that, but then it's intended to be a more secure online type voting platform through which this could this type of concept could be facilitated such that then we don't have ballots to count we have a a systematic way of saying hey these are the results in real time this is where they're from and you have that you don't have a delay you don't have those questions hopefully and then you also have a secure transaction for um accounting for those so I, I get a little concerned when we, we go to a single type of voting and especially something that's um, electronic uh, because that can be manipulated uh, and we're seeing um, other foreign adversaries kind of um, try to impact that. And I think that they have to a large degree in, impacted some of the outcomes of the elections, um, whether it was 100% them. Again, I don't operate in absolutes, but I do think that they were impacted in a material way. Now, I do want to clarify when I agreed with you um, uh, uh, about some kind of validation for who you are. Um, I'm all for that as long as it is 100%. I will say this is an absolute equitable to everyone. So I don't think it has to be um, any kind of um, just a picture ID your your gun permit or something like that. Um, I think that if you go to anything like that, then these communities um, that have traditionally and demonstrably oppressed people of color as far as their voting ability, they would have to, you know, I'm going to Uber everybody to register. I'm going to, or, or, or again, the automatic um, registration, um, I don't know, uh, whatever I would. Yeah, I will. I'm, I'm saying as a precursor, I would support automatic registration so that yeah. we don't make that a hurdle. And that, you know, you would think as a normal basic human right, if, if you need to be identified by the government, they should be providing you with a government ID in an accessible manner such that you can be identified. That shouldn't be a, a gigantic task. It shouldn't be. Um, I think also, you know, that there is some manipulation as far as when people can vote, voting hours, um, how that's impacted as far as people who work shifts um, or, or how many number of polling stations or voting stations uh, that, that are available. I have been um, an election judge for both the midterms and for um, the presidential election. And I feel very confident in how that went. Um, that was it's a bipartisan effort. There have to be people that are recognized from both of the major parties there. Um, and I can tell you, I was at different sites both times. Uh, and I felt very confident in that um, the, the, the elections in person and mail-in are extremely um, safe. Uh, I mean, I, I can't say how many notable people 
um, came forward, including Secretary of States and, and, and the different people that validate these elections, that the, our last election was the safest that, that it's ever had in our country's history. So um, I, I think that just simply doubting that um, is not enough. When you have people that are that are validating these things that that across the board across politics say it's the safest we've ever had, um, and and then for people just to kind of come in with uh and that's supposed to be somehow held up or 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 some kind of conspiracy theory about how they don't like the outcome they don't believe the outcome, I just don't think that those should be held as equal positions. Yeah, and my my problem is. Um with the government just saying, Hey, it was the safest, you know, that's great. Regardless. I'm not, I'm not saying that Trump won or anything. I think if, if there are questions of fraud, how, why, why don't we just open it up for audits all around, just get it done, put that to put that to rest. Obviously we've heard tons of cases where people, they they did put it to rest. Each state put put that to rest. That's that, that's not a, was still going on. I know Kenosha, that, that wasn't going to be it, the difference between between that. And that's my no, point. No, is, no that, uh, um, my, is, my point. Can I, can I finish? Yeah, my yeah, point? Yeah, sure. Is that I'm not I'm not trying to say again that Trump won. I'm my point with talking about a blockchain asset to collect votes, to have voter identification and to make that accessible is to eliminate any any instances of fraud, whether they were wide scale enough to change a federal, a local election, whatever that may be. My goal is to have a, a fraud-free election. I realize that's, that's a difficult task um, to come out or to, to take on. Um, but the other thing I was gonna mention is in Kenosha, the sheriff did recommend, I think it was the sheriff and I think it was Kenosha, had recommended charges to the Wisconsin Attorney General um, regarding how votes were collected in uh, elderly living facilities. So to say, I think it's problematic to just say, you know, sure it was safe, Biden's our president, that's fantastic. Um, I don't think that means, hey, we don't have places to improve. We don't have instances where we can take a look and say, hey, how do we prevent this in the future? Because I think in order to build that trust on both sides, that that's what we have to do. Um, I I agree with you know certain sentiments that you've had. I've I've definitely helped uh, the elderly vote in the long term care setting, um, and I can just speak to my experience that that was very very safe and uh, a great example of why we need mail in ballots for those people um, who who still want to vote and and have a voice. And it, I think that you know some of those situations can can be manipulated, um, but I want to be careful that we don't say if we don't have the perfect solution then we don't move forward so my and i i wasn't saying that either no no yeah um i i, I just think that we need to figure out the, the the key to all of this in my opinion is materiality right if there was no widespread voter fraud right it's not material. Nobody, nobody in any state has pointed out anything material. This has been adjudicated um, many, many, many times and, and nothing material was found. So in my opinion, that means that's not a major issue. Now, it has also been brought up that 
people polling stations were closed down or they're not equally distributed for um, different socioeconomic perspectives um, or, or for people of color. So that's something that is material because it is oppressing voices and people of color being heard. So I think that that so that's where I would put my effort instead of trying to make sure it's secure. We already know it's secure, even though the opportunity or potential exists that, that the more material way is to get more voters voting, period. Um, if, if, if everybody was registered and everybody who wanted to, or, or as many people who wanted to that we could engage, wanted to vote and the outcomes were different, I would be okay with that if they were different than what I preferred. Um, but, but I think that wasting dollars on making sure something is um, 99.999999% um, secure instead of, you know, one nine back uh, versus, you know, a 10 or 15% disparity in people being able to vote in certain districts or precincts. That, that's a much more material issue and lots, lots more money should be put into that. Yeah, no, I, I support accessibility. Um, prevention of duplicate votes and verifying that who voted voted the way they you know that we collected that they vote um, and I think that you and I have have just in our own vocation have um, lived a little bit of the process improvement and implementation. And, and so it's not as easy as, as people might think within a business, just a single business, let alone on the national scale. These are not easy endeavors like, hey, Nick and Matt came up with a great idea. And, <laughs> and you know, in, in six months, it will it will be different. I, I think people need to understand that. Um, both what are the material impacts that are that are infringing on all of our, our freedoms and ability to pursue a quality of life and happiness? And two, how do we get there and what does that take? And, and part of that, again, and that's why I think our next series, I'm so excited about education is because um, um, I hate the idea that like kind of poor people of color are the dredges or the people bringing America down when I think that it is um, more so probably. Who says that though? Because I'll oh, admit, my. as, as, as no, as sure. a conservative, I I don't. When people say that that represents conservatives, I hear the other side of the aisle talk about race in that context more than I do on the conservative side. And I mean, say a, what you will, claim that claim that Trump is a white supremacist. Say what you will, you know, I I, I don't think he necessarily was fantastic at breeding unity. I don't think Biden's fantastic at breeding unity. I just I. I really hesitate because this idea that conservatives as a base, you know, are, are inherently racist. I, I will gladly recognize, you know, there, there are social issues. Um, there are some disparities, you know, things that, as you've mentioned, it's been hundreds, 150 years of a country developing infrastructure being built um, that we have to undo. And that's no simple task, but I, I just want to be clear. I, I don't think it represents a conservative voice in or position by any means to say that minorities, anyone in that bucket is a dredge on society. I, I, I just want to say that I'm not saying you were saying that, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. So, so one thing, and I think I've mentioned this in an earlier podcast, um, I, I would consider myself um, in recovery. 
Um, and so I, I don't drink or, or, or take drugs anymore. Uh, it's been like 14 years since I've done anything. Congrats. Like that, but it, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, but I would also say that I'm a recovering conservative and people get chuckles out of that or like, wow, listen to this guy. You know, he's just this bleeding heart liberal. But, um, you know, until I was in my mid to late 20s, I, I was absolutely a conservative, like a diehard. I was the Alex P. Keaton, you know, little little conservative voted for Reagan the first time in second grade that I could vote. So um, this is not coming from the perspective of someone who who only saw one side of it. I, I literally was a conservative uh, into my mid 20s. And um, I, I would say, you know, I, I don't think you're on on some social media platforms like Facebook, but it is absolutely rampant that these kind of ignorant comments are being spread by people who, who can be generalized as as conservative. Um, and, and I will say also that there is a difference, and I definitely mean that there's a difference between saying whose fault it is and being racist, right? So I, I think absolutely um, a, a, con, a conservative tenet is that that minorities or, or somehow people from other cultures um, are, are a dredge on the social system because they don't assimilate into kind of the Anglo-capitalistic um, lifestyle um, that, that, that is kind of exemplified in, in America. I don't think that that means that um, that all of those people think that race makes them inferior, but I still think that there is the construct of them versus us, and that until you assimilate, that that you are a you are lesser. Um, do you do you have that. like, and this may be, uh, do you have a high profile conservative that has shared that viewpoint? Like, I'm just curious to find out where where yeah, you're I mean, seeing the, this because I. The, the best example is absolutely Donald Trump when when we had the the, the protests saying um, they will not replace us and then there was like the conflict with um, where where Donald Trump and, and these are self professed white supremacists um, where, where Donald Trump equates those protesting systemic oppression um, as as somehow equally bad and that these white supremacists are is somehow really they they have really good points as well um, and good people I believe is the term he used and that's just that's simply unacceptable so so that's about yeah, as high profile that, as you but get but that doesn't but that doesn't again so trump yes ran as a republican he served from 2016 to 2020 i think it's irresponsible to say that you know he represents a tenet of conservatism because as we talked about yesterday for 2024 i am hoping for a desantis card i know plenty of people who want christy gnome to run problematic as that may be um, I much prefer DeSantis. I, you know, Trump, I think in many ways, one, because he was the antithesis to what a typical politician was. And with that, he brought a lot of baggage, including how he speaks, how he, how he acts. And there is a, there are a subset of, you call them conservatives. It's far right. It's the same split, just like on the left, you know, with the squad and what they want to do. Um, versus some of the more centrist and moderate, but there, you know, there are people that are are all for that, and I don't think when talking about the majority of conservatives that that is in any way what people think. I think, um, you know, having a fair, fair immigration system—that's one of the things we saw with this, with the border crisis we have, with uh, 
the handling of Afghanistan, the mishandling, I should say. Um, I've worked with individuals who come through the legal immigration process and to see that type of um, uh, that type of just disregard for the, the laws that we've written for people that, you know, had to go through a 10, 12 year process to become an American citizen. That is an important and valuable thing to them that when they see the complete opposite happen, where people can just walk in and not do any of that work, not have to, um, not have to take the steps that they did. It, it feels disrespectful to them. They're not, um, I, I don't know how you could support that. I, you know, if, if someone wanted to leave America and immigrate to another country, you would have to follow um, their legalities for doing that. I'm sure there are some countries with some semi-open borders, but they'd want to know who you are. They, they have rules and laws and a process for how you can become a citizen there. I, I think that makes total sense in America. I, I don't think um, there is this judgment that someone who doesn't assimilate, though, is somehow bringing America down. That's what makes America great. People come to America for the opportunity because, you know, wherever you're coming from, America, you know, that was the American dream that you can make something of yourself. You're capitalistic. There's freedom. Um, I just I, I, I just disagree. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, I would I would say that Firstly, uh, Trump is is not any kind of fringe candidate. He's still, from what I can tell, in complete control of the Republican Party and and dictating um, a lot of who's being elected and what's what's happening. He'll absolutely run in 2024. Um, I, I don't see anybody even close to him. DeSantos, maybe, but he's way, 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 way back. Um, uh, so so the idea that Trump doesn't represent um, the conservative party is, I, I think that's a misnomer at best. Um, and if I had, I don't even know what the equivalent to a Trump on the liberal side would be, but I, I would be use all of my power to disavow that person. I, I, I can say, I, I don't, I just, I cannot even fathom such that type of person on the left because it's so, and it's just against being that bad is so against the liberal perspective that that um, it just kind of couldn't exist. But if it was, I, I would I'd absolutely vote for a conservative over the liberal version of a Trump. It just th that construct isn't fathomable because it's, it's literally against their tenants. Um, I would say that, uh, again, uh, in no disrespect, but the, but the conservative ideal that that people can come to America and it is somehow equitable that they can achieve their dreams. That's just not, that's not true at all. I mean, you have to have money. Um, there are social oppression, systemic oppressions that exist that keep people from doing that. Um, the disparities, disparities in wage. I mean, women still get paid less. Black people get paid. People of color get paid less. So that means they don't have to just work hard. They have to work harder than the other so people to get ahead. Why? And, hold on, hold on just a second. The last point of this, I would also... Um, mention and, and and i'm reading a fabulous book called uh, american dirt um that talks about a woman coming from acapulco and it's fiction but migrating to trying to migrate to the united states is that america doesn't have some of the rampant crime and the cartels and things like that 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 some of these other 
countries do. And we're, we're still just talking about our own continent. We're not even talking about apartheid or, or the Congo or anything like that. So I can, I can a thousand percent guarantee you that if somehow Americans were being oppressed by themselves, all of a sudden, you know, these well-formed militias of right-wing nut jobs are like starting to shoot up people and all of that. And we all start wanting to go to Canada to be safe. We're not going to worry about the legal aspects of that. We're going to get out of that horrible arrangement and we're going to, we're just going to run because it's fight or flight. That's just human nature. So to, but what's to, Canada going to do? If, if they're, just they're a not, mass they're, of Americans, they're going to have to the accept border. it. They would, that's what they would have to do. That's what they, they, because you can't stop that. Now you can, you can try to write laws. Um, you can try to create border protection and, and mitigate some of that, but it's still the, the majority of people when faced with stay in this community and potentially be slaughtered or take a lesser, a lesser risk to try to get to a better land. You, you would absolutely would. I would in a second. I would walk to Canada if no, I that, had to face what those people were. And I wouldn't care what they said at the border. I would just say, all right, I'm coming in whether you like it or not, because my safety matters. So then in that case, borders have no means and laws have no borders. Uh, absolutely. In, in, in that context. So then in that specific then, context of life or with death. That absolutely. absolutely. But with that, so yeah, with that context, that's, that's problematic because at the end of the day, then everyone just flocks to a single safe country, which isn't, we can't do that with populations. So, but that's not what happens. You know, that's, that's, from that's a, kind from, of an extreme example, right? So, so but if, if, if it were, if it were just completely open, then all, all of the people would go to, and, and there's not a central, right? Because there's a lot of people that don't agree with how the United States does things. I think that's a really big misconception that people think everybody wants to be American when I would, I would argue a large percentage of the people don't want to be American because we are kind of perceived and when we are we're selfish we're greedy people we have more than we need and we we care about things like capitalism and then consumption and things like that and there's a lot of other countries that aren't as individualistic uh, i would say the majority of the world that, that are more concerned like oh do my neighbors have enough to eat are they being oppressed and things like that so again that that's why i kind of preface that at the beginning of our our um discussion that there are a lot of people who don't don't even think about things the way the United States does self accumulation, greed that somehow earning money and saving money and wealth is success. That would actually be a marker of, um, of failing in life. Correct. So that that's totally different, I think, versus, you know, when you're talking quality of life versus how you measure success. But the other thing is, if so many Americans don't want to be American, um, why aren't they immigrating elsewhere? I think that's a totally fair question. Capitalism is also based on uh, producing. That's why we have so much opportunity in America is you have the opportunity to produce. And in the conversation, talking about minorities in the census, I, so from the 2020 census, the, the poverty numbers in 2019, um, it looks like black is at 18.8% that fall below the poverty line. Hispanics, 15.7. Um, Asian is 7.3. And non-Hispanic white is at 7.3. So a definite gap there. But it is interesting that um, Asian Americans, 
seem to be left out of that conversation yet find financial success that um, I, I think they are a great example. They are very entrepreneurial. They, um, you know, I'll, I'll, after this episode, I want to do some more research on that, sure. but it, I, I don't think we can cut them out of the conversation because even though they're, they may be an outlier relative to um, black individuals and Hispanics based on that census data, I, I think that's worth um, noting. But additionally, you know, I think capitalism has, you know, there are negatives to it. There's as, as with anything, um, but capitalism incentivizes an individual to go out and build something that has value that can be exchanged with someone else that built something that has value. That's why we have, um, and this isn't limited to America. There are other countries that do fantastic technological um, innovations, but it gives, does give you the opportunity within a capitalistic society, um, albeit with less money, you are going to face more obstacles. You do have that opportunity, which is to build your own business and have that success. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying that truly is accessible to everyone, um, but that that's what America is built on. It's not built on being an employee with W-2 income who's going to get taxed. The, you know, the laws are written to benefit those who own assets, who own land, who own business. So a couple of things. I, I, I'm glad that you're going to look up China. I think that's a great example. Um, not China, Asian uh, Americans. Sorry. Okay. Asian Americans. Cause I, I think that they would kind of do kind of the same, same aspect. I think to look at Asian Americans without focusing on China would be not great research. Um, well, no, think, no, no. I just, I want to, I don't want to focus in on China. No, no. My point would be the same that they come from a collective society. So it's not as much about one person achieving just their potential, but as far as the family rising, right? So, so that's something to, it's not an individual, most of those, I can't think of one in Asian culture that is so individualistic. So that's very, very different. They also believe in hard work, right? So, so I get that mm -hmm. you study hard, th those types of things. But if someone was not able to become a doctor, lawyer, something like that, they aren't outcast by their family. They are also supported equally, with the rest of the, 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 their culture and their population. So that's something to really point out. And, and I did wanna say China in, in the sense that they do represent so much of Asian culture, um, but, but think about the communistic perspective about that. I'm not arguing that that is like a great thing, but those, those type of governmental perspectives do matter um, in, in that regard. Um, I would, I'm going to say just, I think that the capitalistic model is atrocious. It's horrible. And that America was not founded on any kind of capitalistic, um, premise, not, not a purely one anyway, it, it was founded on, and, and we are successful from exploitation, right? We came in and stole a lot of resources and, and we, you could do that same model. I, I could come to South Dakota and, and just steal all of the natural resources or many of them become rich and then say, Hey, don't, don't the rest of you want to be like me? That that's what happened. That's, that's a hundred percent what happened. And I don't, you know, I don't believe necessarily in absolutes, but that that's absolutely what happened. Now did the industrial revolution and did that also put um, people in a good perspective, 
um, opportunity or situation to, to take advantage of that? Absolutely. With steel, mechanization, automation, things like that. Absolutely. If you stole a whole bunch of money and could exploit labor and, and the population to, to achieve your goals, absolutely. But that's a false narrative to say that that is the American dream. Um, I, I think that also we need to reevaluate what the equation should be, and I, I, I'm not sure what the term would be, but it would be something like capitalism, but instead of profit being the, the highest outcome, it would be like social welfare, but not like in a purely socialistic or communistic perspective at all. People can go achieve um, their potential, but others aren't left behind or exploited. Uh, I think that's, what, that's a big misnomer. What do you, well, I, I think to be quite honest, capitalism continues to exploit via employees. Uh, <clears throat> if we want to make exploit that, who, you know, employees, exploit. you know, if you think about, yeah, Oh yeah. I mean, capitalist yeah, capitalism can, is built on exploitation. I would get rid of it. It's horrible. Oh, I would become a business owner and that's, that's okay. We can have two different solutions there. I wanted to ask. So from the, from the capitalistic welfare or social services model, what do you think of Norway? And have you ever heard of Mark Lore, who built Jets.com and worked at Walmart? He's working on some sort of new community um, that I'm looking it up. I, it's... So, so, so I, I haven't heard of the person. I, I don't know. Uh, I know I had the opportunity to work for like a, a company at one point that was an ESOP, which basically as the, what you um what you kind of earned or Employee how you contributed, how long. Yeah. Yep. You get that, a that, stock option. Well, you, you, you become an owner based on what your role is. And so I kind of, I like something like that. Um, I like a more equitable distribution of, of the profits. I think that the, the most classic example is like Amazon and Jeff Bezos, you know, if he's, he should be rewarded at a higher level than just uh, maybe a warehouse worker. But for him to be able to accumulate that kind of wealth versus the the other employees in the warehouse, I just I don't I would never run a business like that. Uh, to me, success is and, and, and I bring this to the table um, when I show up at work every day is that my success is not about getting my goals completed as much as it is about um, making everybody else be better and helping them be better. It's kind of like everybody trying to be an MVP right? You didn't have the most points necessarily, but you made everybody else around you better to achieve their potential that I'm, I'm all about that. Um, I think that uh, also it's, we need to be careful when looking at some of the Scandinavian or Nordic countries, um, because there are variables about those that are resources, population size that cannot be emulated. I think that you, not just economically, but we can look at it as far as like guns, and, and, and violence and things like that. When you have a, a population that is um, isolated or, or the, the answer is it, ju it just depends. Is, is there a correlation? Is it, is it strong enough? Is it direct enough to really be a good analogy? Or is it cherry picking? Is it an outlier? Yeah, that doesn't no, really no, 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 no. But the point I wanted to make within it, because I, I recognize that one, you know, spanning the geographic regions in America, the demographic differences, there are a lot of variables there at play. And if, if we look at Norway as having a, some success in that model, I, I wanted to bring it back actually to fiscal responsibility, because when they discovered oil, 
in the North, I think it's the North Sea um, in Norway, they took that money and invested it. So they have 500 billion sitting in a trust now for the government to use, mm -hmm. which provides them that ability to spend on those social programs. I, I wanted to contrast that with our ability to devalue the dollar in America by printing it by the trillions. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know uh, if they have um, any kind of commodity-based um, currency policy. Um, I know when we move from, you know, the gold standard to fiat currency, that, that that's a big deal um, uh, for, for some people. To me, it's just, again, as we talked about, it's not the material issue. I think the, the, the you know, how, how do you eat a well, right? is one bite at a time. So, so at what point of the whale of the, the systemic oppression um, and injustice do we start at? And, and in my opinion, it starts with, and again, I'm so excited this is gonna lead into this, is the, the education system. So we need more educated people. I would put so many dollars and resources into educating people, that people know how to discern information, they know how to discern data resources, they know how to hear that their thought is wrong and be okay with that, how they know how to um, change vocations uh, when a certain industry, uh, thinking about the coal industry in general that is just dying. It is absolutely dying. Um, and that we don't need to artificially support that or, or um, subsidize that so that people can have their lifestyle um, that they're accustomed to. So because I think that that's going to happen more rapidly, I can tell you I've switched industries, I think three times, four times now. Um, and I found it pretty easy, but I know that I have talked to other people that have been like, wow, I, that would be really hard for me to have been, you know, a coal miner. And now I'm a nurse, not that I did that, but that's a, that's a great example of how you make that transition. I agree. And I, I think even more important than the discerning of information, I think if you're going to swap between industries, we need to have people who are problem solvers, who have a, not a generic set of skills. Like if you're going to be a coal miner, you, you, there's a specific set of skills that you need if you're going to go there. But teaching people who um, have those values you described, like via policy, I don't think we're going to create equity with a Jeff Bezos. You can say, hey, let's tax him 75% and bring him back down to earth. I think raising up the next generation to have more of that responsible business model in mind and encouraging them to go out and do that where, hey, create something that you share that equity and that wealth with the people you build it with, share that with your community, et cetera, is going to do us a lot better than saying, you know, I think it was Elon Musk. He sold what, five, it, it might've been $11 billion of stock when he tweeted at Bernie Sanders and asked him- It was about six billion. More. That's what and he actually he, sold was about six billion. And I think he's gonna pay what, two to three billion in taxes on that sale or, or something to that extent. Um, and you made one other comment. What else, what else did you touch on? I'm sorry. Uh, oh, cool. I think we're, you know, if we're at a point where we wanna to go to green energy, uh, we need to transition there. Um, and well, I mean, that's we're at what that I, point. That, that, that's, but that, that's, that's, what's being, that's, what being, that's what's being missed, though, is we can't just shut off uh, pipelines and then expect to turn on green energy. We saw where that failed in Texas in the spring with wind and solar. 
Um, we mm, need that, to that, that wasn't build what the, caught theirs. Their 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 outs were because of the lack of infrastructure. That was one hundred percent the reason of that. Well, that, that's that my wasn't point. because we, of, that wasn't because of green energy. That we, was the existing infrastructure that they had for their fossil fuels. We don't we don't have the infrastructure though to turn off natural gas and oil and just go electric, wind and solar. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be turned off, but we need to quit putting resources into it. We need to quit having Joe Manchin say, "I'm going to stop an infrastructure bill because my people that want coal supported are angry that are their jobs are being taken away by the liberals." We need to change that. So that's what I would hope to hear from conservatives: is no, 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 that's not the case. That even through say Trump's presidency, um, the coal jobs absolutely declined. It is a dying industry. If you want to stay in energy, this is we'll we'll have grants and we'll we'll, we'll help people get retrained if you want to stay in that. But and because it's it's the money is going towards people transitioning and becoming educated. Absolutely. But that's the piece that, that I think conservatives need to step up and say that um, it's it's not 100 percent shutting it off today, but it is having a roadmap and a plan that says, hey, by 2040, we're using no coal, we're coal or we're, we're carbon neutral, that we're we're investing in these other things we're teaching solar we're teaching these types of technologies in our school systems uh, in elementary middle school um high schools vocation schools i no, i agree and i i'm speaking more to the, the broader inflation that's occurring in natural gas and oil you know we, we shut off pipelines we curb domestic production um you know when biden came in he undid a bunch of trump policies there and then well he did he, he shut down I think it's in Louisiana. There are a bunch of national parks or state parks where there was oil. So if we curb domestic production of oil, we shut off pipelines. The result then is we have less. So the price goes up is just economics. And then we go and beg OPEC to produce more, which OPEC isn't going to do. They want us to pay $85, a barrel and rightfully so, we, so. It's not reasonable to think that Biden had any kind of material impact on the the price of of oil and gas what happened was people came out of a pandemic and demand spiked that's and that that too too. no 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 not that too that's the most material perspective and that's the point that i think conservatives get into is hey what about this other thing over here that doesn't really matter but i'm going to hold on to it and i'm going to hold it up as a false equivalent to biden shutting down some some random nuanced niche pipeline production and and and, and that it just simply does not account for the rise in demand from everybody else driving i would also argue that that and we hear this more from conservatives in my opinion i, I haven't seen it where liberals are complaining that somehow you want the gas and oil and coal industry to do extremely well financially so that they can support these jobs but you get pissed off when the the prices of those things go up you can't have it both ways you can't have hundred dollar crude oil and dollar 50 gas those don't that, that's not a reality. no i know i i mean i don't want hundred dollar barrel gas i'm what? and i'm supporting if we're gonna if we're gonna move to 2040 i'm just saying when we're shutting off pipelines and curbing domestic production these are you know going and having to beg opec for oil that that is part of it i agree that we, I don't think we, we begged reopened. OPEC for money or for oil. I, I don't think we begged anybody. Biden went to OPEC. 
I, but I'll, that's I'll, I'll find talking that. to them. Well, no, no, please do because I, I'd like to hear um, the difference between making a request for any kind of production adjustment and short run versus long run impacts versus begging someone to do something that will materially impact more than the current demand. And, and I would argue that we're seeing the outcome or the, the, the um, externalities of this demand because, and especially Minnesota is number one, is in these COVID breakouts. Everybody thought it, or many people thought that it was safe to go travel. And so they did. And now the infection rates are up again because they went and traveled and here we are again. So I, I suspect that um, if the numbers keep rising, we'll see a dip in the price of gas and oil because people, the demand will be so much lower because um, people aren't traveling because, you know, so many people are in the ICUs again. Yeah, I saw that Minnesota was having a spike. Luckily, South Dakota's remained pretty flat. I saw an ABC6, ABC6 article on Vermont, too, where they did mention that um, college kids that were unvaccinated and they didn't have enough people with natural immunity in Vermont, which I got a kick out of, uh, was contributing to their spike. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's sort of what they predicted with Florida having the spike, um, you know, July, August, that it was going to be flu season esque up here. Um, I'm actually in Minnesota right now, so I put myself in harm's way, I guess. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I always like the comparison to South Dakota staying flat uh, in, a, in, in a state that, you know, hosts like um, Sturges where 300,000 people came. And uh, I, I just I'm. I was there, uh, you know, uh, in the pandemic, you know, seeing the Badlands felt like that was a safe option to, to travel uh, in that moment. Um, and lots of people uh, did not get the impression that science um, or facts or, or kind of like reporting these instances is like if you if you don't believe that the that COVID is a real thing, why would you go get tested and then report that? So um, the, the the statistics of the information that comes out about um, how flat something is, is kind of only as good as the data that's being input. So if, if you don't record well, your data. Uh, there you go. If, if you get sick and don't go to the hospital and, and are counted that way, uh, there, there you go. Uh, if you have a, a sparsely populated rural area where people aren't naturally interacting anyway, uh, that could be a contributing factor either. Uh, also, definitely. So the answer depends comparing South Dakota and, and uh, Minnesota face value like that. Uh, that's not a, a reasonable comparison, in my opinion. Well, I like the comparison because the fact that we've been opened and I wouldn't say that people say COVID isn't real. I think it's uh, it comes back to how much risk are you willing to tolerate when you look at the demographics, the comorbidities of people who've died? Um, what, what risk are people willing to tolerate? You know, we've had almost two years with COVID now. Um, and some people, you know, you might be triple vaxxed, you might have a mask on and that's the risk you're willing to tolerate while still being six feet away from people. And you may be an unvaccinated individual who is younger. That's okay. Living their life as pretty much normal. And I, I think that's important to wait, um, is what, where do you fall in the risk range? And, you know, some people aren't willing to make that bet. Some people it's a zero or a hundred versus, hey, you have a 99.8% chance and that's good enough. I lost your audio. Sorry, I inadvertently hit the mute. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's, that's probably part of the, the 
error with the, the capitalistic mindset or the individualistic mindset that um, you're making a decision that somehow only impacts you and, and the COVID, the um, issue is, is clearly something that um, when people decide to go be unsafe, it's impacting other people. So, so those people are infringing on other people's liberty um, and their, their attempt at, at happiness. Um, I, I think that's unfortunate. And again, I still stand by my statement that um, if you don't believe that it's real or that it's material or that it, it's, it's significant, um, then you might not go to the hospital. You, you might not report. Um, I don't know that you might not even attribute um, all of these people that could have died or had issues from COVID that if you have a governor um, that, that doesn't seemingly doesn't believe in COVID or, or that it's it's that significant of an issue that um, that maybe other people don't as well in those government agencies uh, and that could skew um, the representation of the impact of that pandemic. Um, that that's what I would say. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's fair. Um, like I said, I think it's a risk tolerance, and I don't think we've. I, I, you know, with technology, it's great, but we don't live in a world where the risk tolerance is zero, whether it's the flu, whether it's uh, car traffic, you know, um, we, we live in a world where, where things can happen. So to, to deem someone, a, you know, a threat, whether they're vaccinated, unvaccinated, we've seen breakthrough cases, we've seen vaccinated, unvaccinated individuals carry it. Um, I don't know. At some point, I think if, if masking, lockdowns, vaccinations aren't getting us what we want, maybe we're, we're looking at the wrong thing. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And, you know, if we're not curbing the spikes to a degree that we want, you know, we, we did the full lockdown, we're vaccinating individuals, maybe there's something else that we need to take a look at. The other fantastic thing too is with Pfizer and and Merck, we have these pills that are supposed to guarantee severe hospitalization so that one would hope if and when FDA approval comes through that that pushes us to the next horizon that we can start worrying about whatever the next pandemic is going to be. Yeah, I, I, I think we just need to be cautious because, I mean, in theory, it would be great if everybody masked and got vaccinated and practiced social distancing, but clearly they didn't. Uh, South Dakota is a great example of a, a state that didn't do that, that allowed things like Sturgis, 300,000 people to come be in close contact. So we really, we, we know empirically that doing those things really curbed the spikes and the outbreaks. Um, but until everybody really wants to participate, we'd really not know. Um, so, so that's really, uh, I think the, um, the misinformation about that is that um, all those things were working in the areas that um, it worked, but that you had some outlying people that um, were a little more maverick and um, kind of did their own things, including traveling to things like Sturges. I mean, where do you think those 300,000 people went? Uh, they went home and then they, they um, in, their, in, in their practice of liberty, they, they spread it and to, to people that were um, trying to be safe, um, but, but nothing like that's 100%. And so um, you give it enough. But how do we quantify that? We don't even have the data to quantify. I, I think you what can trace. Spread. Well, well, okay. But let's say you you can't trace it. You can just say from a purely testing perspective that if everybody or or a big subsection are practicing these interventions and numbers fall, 
then there is an area that is not and people travel to that area or people are traveling more and interacting with people that that are not not believing in in science um then the numbers spike again well there you go that that's your evidence that that should be enough now now i will say but this, when, when did they when did they spike following Sturgis this year? That that's what no, I'm no. I, 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 I they all, oh absolutely please look that up. That was definitely spikes, but it was also spikes from people just traveling in general and not being safe and feeling like it was over. And I, I like that you pointed out that um, that you can get breakthrough cases. I have a friend of mine who who had both vaccines um, and got a booster and. Um, pretty much work from home and practice some safety, um, but somehow got COVID from traveling or interacting with someone else that didn't believe um, or take precaution. And his symptoms resulted in a cold, he had a two, two or three day cold, something like that. No ICU. So I, I think that given our druthers, um, we would all be much happier with people having a cold over the weekend or even a recurring cold um, than people dying, um, having long-term respiratory issues, um, congesting our ICUs and hospital systems that are um, also externalities as far as like the, the direct and clinical staff um, not being able to keep up with this, quitting, going and doing something else. I mean... It, there's no absolute, but there is a clear and better option. And that's to practice being safe. And I, I think that's relative to everyone because again, you know, there's just a, there's a soccer player who collapsed um, over in Europe. There's another soccer player who, and this is on the pitch due to cardiac issues. There's another soccer player who just signed a new giant contract. I think his name's Gerard Romero, who just had to retire due to, uh, cardiac issues as a result of I, he was vaccinated recently as a um, result of or coincidentally well so so i would want to i would want uh, to rate it, a professional's no, no 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 I, I i totally agree i'm just saying we're, we're starting to see anecdotal evidence and uh at least on my end again myocarditis is a legitimate concern um and there there's some of that to be seen and people will say you can get the same thing with covid um, you know, defining what safe means with COVID again is relative because we, we often talk about, okay, you're unvaccinated. You are the severe case that's clogging up an ICU and that's just a guaranteed. And then you even said, you know, someone who is a non-believer they came into contact with, uh, you know, if someone who's vaccinated has a breakthrough case there, they can spread it all the same. I think that's Keep the, being safe. That's all you have to do is keep being safe. That's the best opportunity that you can have. And and, and I would say just to circle well, and, this back and to Brett to circle this back to injustice or justice in general is that this um, this impacts those people that are working shift work, that are working lower income jobs, that that can't just say I'll quit and be okay because I have a savings or that I have all of the other infrastructure in my life to be able to sustain this. Why people um, keep letting these things spike because their liberty. So the, the service people that are out there serving in restaurants and hotels and things like that, those industries are being devastated because people won't take natural precautions. It's not that the, if you wear a mask, take medication, practice social distancing, that there are 
no negative impacts. It's just that there's so much less than just, you know, going out and doing whatever you want that, that it's not even a, a close argument. So to frame it that way is not really responsible. I would say that people need to go talk to their physician, make sure that their physician believes that COVID is real um, and has some empirical evidence, and then take the recommendation of, of their physician and, and go from there. If you do what your doctor tells you to do, right, and, and, and practice that regardless of what other people do or some kind of outline snippet about a soccer player or this one, you know, it's, it's just not material relative to the impacts of everybody not doing or many people doing what is being recommended. The outcome would be significantly different. I think that's probably, again, I come back to it's problematic to just take that recommendation as uh, you know, if we're supposed to discern information and that's what we want to teach the next generation, you know, we, again, we've lived with this for two years. You've seen, you know, evidence with people, you know, who have gotten it, who've been vaccinated, so forth. Even just hearing how terrible people are feeling after they're getting their third boosters that they are struggling to make it through a work day. You know, it's fantastic. You're having a robust immune response, knowing nothing about science that just, that just seems wrong to accept as a, a normal side effect of the vaccine. Um, and again, we, we know certain populations within this disease, uh, people who are obese, people with comorbidities, people who are 65 and plus, why haven't, as, as we do a return to normal life, we should be adjusting that based on risk parameters. And I wanted to ask you a question too, just, just curious. Have you ever painted before, yeah, like a right. house? Like you were? Do you mask up when you do that? Um, uh, let's see. So I finished my basement, right? And so I did not. I I masked up when I did the insulation. I masked up when um, I put the primer on because of the tape and mudding. I did not mask up when I put on the actual paint. Um, I feel like I I probably should have. Um, yeah, I probably should have in that That's, regard. So what type of mask did you wear for the insulation and the primer? It, it was one of those big masks that has like the separate um, filters on each side. Yeah. And then it has the strap that goes around the, the, the back, things like, like that for that. Okay. Because that, that's one of the things I've thought about too in the context of COVID, given how small those particles are. Um, is most of the cloth masks that people wear compared to what you were wearing for insulation and priming. And again, I realized probably a logistical nightmare to make this feasible. If we really wanted to curb spread based on masking, those are the type of masks that we would be using or something to that effect, as opposed to, Hey, here's this cloth face covering. Cause I'm still going to put air particles into the atmosphere wherever I am. And I think it, it's interesting too that everyone was sent inside and whenever we all go inside, you know, it's gotten colder, cases are starting to spike, that there is evidence to support that outdoor spread is negligible to non-existent, that this virus dies outside. And that it, it's an interesting take from Brett Weinstein, again, um, evolutionary biologist, that had we gone outside when this pandemic started that that would have been a better solution to locking down and remaining in. So, so a couple of things about the, the uh, masking and things. I think that that is a difference in how we're perceiving what we're trying 
to do. I'm uh, the way I understand it is when I was doing my basement, I was trying not to breathe something in primarily um, with COVID and wearing the mask, you're trying not to spread it outwardly. That doesn't mean zero. That just means what has, again, a material impact and what's scalable. How can you get 330 million people or how many other people are out in the United States running around? How can you most significantly get them to stop the spread. And if you're talking about six feet and wearing a mask, that's super easy. It's really scalable and it prevents a lot of it, not all of it. And that doesn't have to be all of it to be true. It's just the majority of it. So, so that's definitely something that I would consider. Also the context of going outside. I don't know what the impact of going outside is versus being further away from people when you're outside. I don't know about you, but my how I interact with people and what I observe more is when people are outside, generally speaking, they are further apart than when they're inside. That's not all True. the time. You could say I'm going to a concert, whatever, um, but, but generally going to the grocery store or um, going on a hike or taking a walk, any of those things, you're just further apart from people in general than when you're in your, um, than in your home or like say church where it is a gathered to be a concert, any of those things. So I don't think that weather has nearly as much to do with it as how people behave when they're inside versus outside. Well, and I think if, if we're going to say that, you know, there's increased risk in those gathered communities, though, the more people congregate inside, the more likely you are to have that spread. That's why we saw still saw case spread despite lockdown. The people you're most comfortable with are the people you spend time indoors. You probably don't socially distance from. Those are the people you're really you're getting it from people in that intimate setting, not, oh, I was at the grocery store. And again, you know, this is anecdotal, but right. Um, if, if you're keeping that distance again, like you said, with the, with the odds, um, you know, the evidence with lockdowns that we still have case spread would indicate that. Right. That those, those, those cases are from not social distancing and not wearing a mask. So again, going to concerts, Astro World, Sturges, all of those things, even though they're outside um, or, or things that are outside, if you're, negating one of those three tenets of vaccinated masking and social distancing then of course your your rates are going to go up that's science that's just science it, so inside is, or outside it doesn't matter if you start to negate one of those three tenets of course your rates are going to go up that's again that's just science so then when when you talk about rates going up and i know we're we're probably reaching a cap this has been a great great discussion <laughs> yeah unplanned um so then when do we when do we end it when do we call for the end that that's that's my question too is because no matter what if we always track cases because we don't do this with the flu sure is sure. there is no end because everyone's gonna be like well there's there's 40 new cases in minnesota today so now yep. we need to curb back people weren't being safe versus you know well 40 relative to 80 percent of the population has been vaccinated we know 70 million people have gotten it so forth 
so so two things I'll say. One, and then we do need to kind of wrap it up here. I, I know we went way over our limit, which is fine. And that's just how we do it. Um, but uh, one is, I don't know. I've asked um, certain clinicians, no epidemiologists, but I have other asked other um, healthcare workers, doctors, uh, nurse anesthetists, things like that. What What is that threshold? Because I want to know, and I think other people want to know, and the answer is we don't know. And part of the reason that we can't determine that, in my opinion, is, is because we can't get people to do the right things to see what it looks like when we have it under a better control, like say the flu, where potentially um, people still have to get boosters every single year for COVID. And that's just part of living with it, but we can't get it into the control of say, like um, the flu. And, and that would be different, but um, we, we need to find out through people adhering to the, the, the healthcare guidance to get to that point. And, and, and that's again, the iterative process, the scientific method is once you reach or, or test your outcome or your posit, um, then, then you, your thesis, then you get to um, adjust and, and come up with a new position. And, and, but, but we're never gonna get there if, if we keep defying the science and say, no, I think I'm just gonna do what I want. I, I, don't, I don't believe the science, I don't understand it. Uh, I'm gonna get a microchip um, if I do that, or uh, it's gonna change my DNA or, or some of these types of things. And again, I'm not talking about people um, uh, that have uh, gone to a physician, two physicians, three physicians, a practitioner that has legitimately said, here's the science why this isn't a good intervention for you. I'm not talking about that. Trust your healthcare professional, right? But uh, if you adhere to what your physician says, if the vast majority of people would just adhere to what the, the, the physicians and the experts are saying, instead of defaulting to their doubt, well, we would get to, we would be able to ask that question, but we won't, I don't think we'll be able to answer that question until we get to that point. That makes sense. And I, again, I, maybe I'm just a cynic, but <laughs> if we, if, if someone had a physician and they did nothing but listen to them, you know, physicians make incorrect diagnoses, incorrect sure. in sure. prescriptions. I'm not saying it's all, um, but I, I think it's dangerous to have blind trust in any one individual to say, Hey, no matter what they say, this is going to be successful for you. That's why I think it comes back to, as you're saying, listen to your professional, but also um, continue to discern information as you please. And uh, I, I really look forward to a day when we just we're done talking about COVID <laughs> and spikes and we're we're back. To, I don't know if we'll ever get back to normal, but well, the uh, new normal is, is shifting. I and I, I think that the, the new normal will be better than what we came from, um, because I think that it will be more people centric. I think that it will um, be more relationally um, centric. I think that it will be less about how much you can consume status. Um, attainment. I, I just, I think people are realizing through that, that um, interacting with your loved ones. I mean, through this, you and I have become friends, man, that I, I couldn't write a check for that. You know what I mean? So, That's so true. Th th there you go. I, I take that and some COVID um, over the one of us becoming a multimillionaire any day of the week. Question for you too. I'm yep. sorry to keep extending this, but uh, <laughs> has your social circle gotten smaller or larger during COVID? I don't know. And, and I would say that um, be, be, I, I like to think about your social circle as kind of like um, our solar system, right? And, and let's, 
uh, pretend um, non-narcissistically that we are the sun, right? Is that you have, uh, you have these orbits of social interaction, right? And I think what we thought was uh, meaningful social circles where things like Facebook or, you know, TikTok now, whatever. And, and those aren't meaningful. Those are super f- superficial. Those are transactional relationships. I, I think I have almost 600 friends on Facebook. I probably interact with, with, I don't know, three to 5% of those people on any kind of real regular basis or have any kind of real um worthwhile interaction with them. So, so that's, I think the important discernment, I would say that the friends that I did have, or that were in those certain um, rings of interaction have more solidified. So I probably, the friends I was close with, I'm closer with and people that were probably on the fringe either kind of stayed out there or I cut loose. Um, I'm to be fair. I cut loose a lot of toxic relationships because of things that they believed that I, the thought just crossed the line. And this isn't, I mean, clearly Trump isn't the, the uh, Trump isn't a defining principle for me. It would kind of like, you know, if you voted for Trump, fine. I I disagree and think you're wrong. That's fine. We can be friends. Um, You think that the Trump won the election. Um, We can be acquaintances, but um, I'm I'm really going to question what you say. Um, And that uh, for those people that believe uh, tr- just like the Texas thing that JFK is J- JFK Jr. Yeah, is yeah, coming that, back. <laughs> I, I got I, I to gotta shut you down on that. Um, the, the people that I had a couple of friends that thought that Trump was going to come back and be inaugurated in March or August or whatever it was. I, that's, that's just a realm of crazy and delusion that, that I just, that's not healthy to interact with people like that. Yeah. And so I so don't want to participate they, in them. They want him back. And, you know, like you said, we, we need to accept a new reality. Um, you know, if, if you fall in that camp, I'm not saying I fall in that camp. I, I was admittedly disappointed when Biden was elected. Um, and that's okay. Uh, and at, at the end of the day, my life hasn't changed a ton as a result of it. Well, and that's that's a good point to point out. There's a lot of other people that their life is getting significantly better. And there's not a lot of people that their life is getting worse. That that's kind of how I net that, that out. Um, Well, I I, I wasn't, but, but I was having hurt feelings is very different than having the president of the United States say that white supremacists are good people. Yeah. And I, again, I was just commenting that, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about these issues, these problems, things that come up in the media and to a, to a large degree for the vast majority of people has no impact. The news headline one day to the next, we're going to get up, go to work tomorrow. Uh, it's a lot of, it's going to be the same. Um, I would say, I mean, I'm, I'm a reasonably educated person. I, I financially do decent. Um, so I would say from that kind of perspective, my life hasn't changed a lot. I will tell you my life has skyrocketed as far as the emotional an intrinsic kind of tension that existed when Trump was president. Um, And I think that is a benefit that is hard because it's such a qualitative measurement. There are so many people that can just breathe that, that we don't have someone just saying 
absolutely crazy things, taking a Sharpie marker to a weather map because they disagree, um, talking about grabbing females by their genitalia. I mean, it, it literally did not stop from this man from the time he started running until he left office. And, and still to this to this day, um, you know, some of his conspiracies are being promoted and, and they cause anxiety. So if we want to talk about quality of life, um, getting better or worse, I think America is a lot better off because they aren't as anxious about what some crazy person's going to say. Uh, it's just, my yeah. And again, I 1000% don't condone the words that come out of Donald's mouth at all. Um, I think, I think Biden's had some flaws in his agenda. And I, I, uh, I would agree with that. My person, I, I, I agree. Thing. I, 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 I think, think he could have handled, I, I think like, just as an example, I will admit, uh, he could have handled Afghanistan better. That being said, he kind of had to execute on, um, you know, Trump negotiating with terrorists. So there you go. And, and I will say that at least Biden was pretty true to, to who he is, that he, he had even, you know, had some disagreements with uh, Obama about wanting to pull out. So, yeah, I, I can agree. He, he didn't succeed to the level that that I wished he would have in that regard. And my heart goes out to those persons and people that were killed or left behind or anything. I don't think that that was OK, but that in no way is equal to what Trump did. It's, it's not even it's not it's not even a discussion. In, in my opinion, it's not close. I mean, clearly we're discussing it, so. <laughs> yeah, and what's, my issue with that is, okay, Biden made a call, right? Biden made a decision six months or, you know, eight months into his presidency. Well, he followed through with an obligation because that was already signed to pull out. So tr he, he followed, it's kind of like not increasing the debt ceiling for what kind of conservatives spent. It's kind of the same thing. He just kind of followed through with what Trump already negotiated. That's, that's he did fact. it. My understanding, he did it months later. And, uh, you know, one, he assumed Kabul was going to stand for a month, not for lots of people did 24 lots hours. People. Yeah, lots of people did. I think that was a surprise the, to a lot of people. A lot of the experts, a lot of experts. were feeding yeah. him <laughs> intel, which is an interesting which, which take. Is, right. Which is the, a lot of the same experts that were feeding Trump intel. They're not different people. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not so, actually. I'm, that, that's yeah. about experts in general, that experts sure. can get it wrong. Um, okay. It's it's just disappointing to me that we we left all that equipment, that we really, we hung allies, we hung young men who were serving there sort of out to dry, regardless that, of who was in that, the driver's seat. But that wasn't a Biden thing. That, that would have happened if Trump would have been in office. That's how it they, was negotiated. It's the same thing. They weren't going to bring all that stuff back. That was never going to happen. That didn't happen. Clo closing, closing the Northern Air Force Base, I don't think was in that plan to begin with. They were going to, why would they have left all of that equipment for the Taliban to take? I think that's what they did with Iraq too. I think all of that equipment got left because the, the, the cost to, and, and when I say cost, I mean the cost, not just financially, but to persons to kind of move that stuff out, that stuff didn't get moved over there in a weekend to kind of dismantle Correct. and move that infrastructure that I think that is definitely not any part of it because we're, we're, we're removing our presence. We're removing our responsibility in that area. So I, we, we definitely need to wrap up, though. I mean, and, 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 and all of our listeners can definitely see that we kind of go on tangents from uh, kind of justice it's, into kind of some some contemporary issues that you and I feel strongly about. And I hope that people will come away from this um, investigating, 
thinking about things, having discussions. I mean, you and I have said, and, and I hope demonstrated that, that we don't agree on some things, but we're civil about it. We present our evidence. We're willing to listen to the other person. And, and I think that's what we're just trying to put out there, right? 100%. I mean, yeah. again, at the end of the day, our opinions uh, thus far, we haven't changed anything or, yeah. <laughs> you know, from a policy perspective, we're just throwing ideas out there. Uh, for people to consume, for people to agree, disagree with. And the hope is, at least from my perspective, that in America, in the world, the more robust discussions that can be had, when you bring more people with different viewpoints to a problem, you are bound to come to a better solution or a better consensus um, if you guys can truly have a conversation. If you bring... uh, uh, an echo chamber of viewpoints, you are going to end up with an echo chamber of results. And that's never good for anyone. No, compromise, confirmation bias never, never really changed the world. Yeah. So with that, um, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, let us know your thoughts. Uh, continue ignoring the noise. We will be back, I believe, in two weeks is our plan, given the right. Thanksgiving holiday. Um, yep. And we're planning a little, a little newer segment ahead of that. But Uh, Continue to ignore the noise, discern information out there, and uh, maintain facts over feelings. And we'll be back with you in a few weeks. Have a good day.